0: Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org it's talk of Iowa from IPR News I'm Charity Nebbie when the Supreme Court released the Dobbs decision this summer overturning Roe versus Wade it gave states the right to determine how they want to regulate abortion including outlawing it entirely abortion rights have become a major issue for many voters in the upcoming midterm elections the results of that remain to be seen but this hour we're going to talk about how Iowans have responded to the Dobbs decision and we'll take a historical look at abortion laws and views in Iowa over over time, to start us off, Karen Kadrowski is here, professor and director of the Carrie Chapman Catt Center for Women in Politics at Iowa State University. Hello, Karen. Hello. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here today. And we just had a new Iowa poll released uh, today saying that the majority of Iowans support legal abortion. Sixty one percent say abortion should be legal in most or all cases. That, of course, does not necessarily mean that this is the issue that Iowans will be voting on. But tell me uh, your response to that Iowa poll this morning
1: yeah well, it certainly is timely and um and in, and I think it it really is a rather definitive statement on what Iowans think about abortion and whether or not it should be legal um sixty one percent is a, a a hefty majority. There's no way that you know one can argue that it is you know just close or within the margin of error or a statistical tie this is this is pretty clear and it has been consistent over the last few polls that have been done by the Des Moines Register as well. Um, And it also tends to reflect um, the national mood. Uh, Nationally, we see very similar things that most people don't particularly like abortion, but they think that it should be legal.
0: The support for abortion rights that we see in this poll, that we see in Iowa, as I mentioned, doesn't necessarily correlate with how people will vote in a couple of weeks during the midterm election. And I want to talk a little bit about that because uh, people who are in favor of abortion rights would say that abortion is on every ballot this November. Abortion is not specifically On the Iowa ballot this November. And in some ways that makes this kind of an unprecedented issue as far as uh, driving voters to the polls.
1: Right. So there is no uh, referendum on the issue of abortion specifically. So to say that it is on every ballot, it it really means that it is sort of one step removed. What it is, is that we are voting for individuals who will have the power to vote on legislation to regulate um, abortion. And that is certainly true. And um, it is especially true at the state legislative level. So one thing that Dobbs did was to say, you know, they're, you know, we're overturning Roe. There is no national policy. This needs to go to the states, and we have found that states have responded in in wildly differential differential ways, um, from you know b- outright bans to um, to enshrining it within the constitution, leading to a real patchwork of policies. Um, and of course, in those states that have simply regulated abortion legislatively, it does mean that the state legislature could change those laws. So in that respect, abortion is definitely on the ballot.
0: Historically speaking, Karen, um, voters don't care a whole lot about state politics, especially when they look at the state house
1: and the state Senate. That's... Yeah, right. And and for those who are, are, are talking about how abortion is, you know, on every ballot, what they might find is that, you know, when it comes to state legislative races, um, which are are low information races, um, name recognition becomes extremely important, but also in most states, not necessarily in Iowa, but in most states, uh, state legislative districts are, are gerrymandered to be safely Democratic or safely Republican. So, you know, a lot of these races may be simply uncontested. And I think that that could also be true in Iowa. I just got done voting in my district and my state legislative races were uncontested. And the Dobbs decision came down late enough that uh, filing deadlines had passed. So if Dobbs was to motivate people to run for office and to challenge people who had differing opinions than their own on abortion, they don't have that opportunity really until 2024.
0: And let's let's maintain a state focus here, because looking ahead to 2024, and, and I realize that things could happen on the national level, and I want to talk about that as well, but maintaining a state focus, knowing that a lot of these races are uncontested or a foregone conclusion when we look at state House and state Senate races in the state. What is the forecast looking over the next two years to 2024?
1: Right. Well, here in Iowa, especially in 2020, there was a the state legislature passed a constitutional amendment, uh, uh, the first round of a constitutional amendment that would um, indicate that the state constitution that there's no right to abortion at all, and that public funding cannot be used uh, to provide abortion services. If this uh, amendment passes by the end of the 20. 23 session, so the one that we're looking at for, uh, you know, uh, to convene in January, um, then it will be likely to be on the ballot in 2024. So, like Kansas had a direct referendum on on a constitutional amendment for abortion, uh, we could see the same thing playing out in 2024 here in Iowa.
0: Do recent court decisions in Iowa make it a moot point, though?
1: Uh no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think so uh because i i really think and I don't think that public opinion polls showing that you know sixty percent of Iowan's is going to make this a moot point either um the the Republican sponsors for this um for this proposed constitutional amendment are really um deeply con hold deep convictions about abortion and they um want to you know pursue that as far as it can. Can go and um, and also we have seen that just the Republican base is very strongly pro-life, and a lot of these folks are worried about being challenged from within their party. So that has pushed um, you know some of the conservative rhetoric tor- more towards the extremes, and we see the same thing on the Democratic side with people talking about you know uh, you know <laughs> abortion and. Um, ever more strident and extreme terms as well.
0: Well, the the reason I ask that, of course, is that there have been court decisions recently in Iowa that Mm -hmm. have uh, negated what was the the claim or the the truth, I guess, at, at a certain point, the accepted understanding that abortion was protected in the Iowa Constitution. So yep. when we look toward right. this next legislative session, okay. some major changes could take place.
1: Yeah, I- exactly. And I actually expect that we're going to see that legislation will be passed to further restrict abortion. But I also think that, that um, that the fact that that we are dependent upon a court to interpret the Constitution and that the courts in Iowa have reached different conclusions, that that's going to give momentum to this notion that that a constitutional amendment is needed uh, because it would absolutely clarify the situation. So for those who oppose abortion, they would not take enough solace in recent court decisions. Um, They would still want to pursue this amendment. And then I think we will also be seeing that, you know, that, that there might be outright bans,
0: But if that amendment makes it to the ballot and is defeated, that does not protect the right to abortion in the state of Iowa.
1: No, it does not. It simply prohibits, keeps it, keeps a prohibition of abortion out of of the Constitution. So it, it would not, it doesn't even prohibit, it would just simply state that con- that abortion is not a constitutional right. Um, so it, to fully protect abortion rights beyond all shadow of a doubt, as it were, it would require, I think, a constitutional amendment in Iowa that would indicate that abortion is a constitutional right. So
0: you mentioned already that when the Dobbs decision came down, the filing deadlines were already passed. So if that was a motivating factor for Women to run for office in this state, we won't see that effect now. We do, however, have a large number of women running for office in Iowa. Yeah,
1: absolutely, and there has been a steady increase at the CAT Center. We've been following this for 20 years or more, and when we started, you know, collecting these data, women were only about 15 percent of our state legislative candidates, um, nation or excuse me, statewide, and now they're about 30 percent. And we have really seen a sea change at the federal level. Um, and, of course, at the statewide, at the gubernatorial level, where we've now had several very, very prominent races that are a Republican woman against a Democratic woman. So I think having women running for office has become pretty normalized in Iowa, and that means that that um, these candidates, you know, c- can move beyond the questions about the legitimacy of women holding public office, and we can have conversations about issues. And that's, you know, what we saw in the Greenfield Ernst race and clearly what we're seeing in the gubernatorial race this year.
0: Let's focus on the national questions here as well, um, because, of course, we are seeing uh, this abortion debate play out on a national level. We are certainly hearing from all of the candidates in Iowa who are running for Congress, and uh, President Joe Biden has been making Mm -hmm. the case that uh, if you know, elections go his way, then Roe will be codified. What would it take to codify Roe?
1: Um, Well, I think the the first step would be to pass a national law stipulating that um, abortion is legal Um, and not throughout pregnancy. That's what a lot of people stipulate. Rode never said that, that abortion was legal throughout all of the the pregnancy. Um, Really what was in place was 20 weeks. And that came after the Casey decision. So to say that you're going to enshrine Roe, I think it really means that there would not be any restrictions on abortion um, for the first 20 weeks. And then um, states or the federal government could start to put some um, restrictions on abortion after the 20-week mark. Um, and that's what we had lived with for you know a good thirty years, and um, and but and then further from that, I think would be a constitutional amendment that would specifically define th- um, this. Which and both of these are very high hurdles. Right? Yeah, and let's so talk Brett- about
0: how high those hurdles are. After our break, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to okay. take a short break. I'll be back to my conversation with Karen Kudrowski, professor and director of the Kerry Chapman. Carrie chapman Cat Center for Women in Politics at Iowa State University. We're talking about abortion rights in Iowa this hour. And of course, right now, taking a look toward the midterm elections. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and *Melisande*, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org.
2: I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A.
0: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. When the Supreme Court released the Dobbs decision in June overturning Roe versus Wade, it gave states the right to determine how they want to regulate abortion. This hour, we're talking about how Iowans have responded. And uh, right now, we're taking a political view. We're looking at how this may impact the midterm elections coming up in two weeks and the elections also in 2024. In a few minutes, we're going to take a historical view and talk about abortion and abortion rights in Iowa, how they have been shaped by different movements through history, and how how we see the issue now is very different from how we've seen it in the past. Karen Kudrowski is with me right now, professor and director of the Carrie Chapman Catt Center for Women in Politics at Iowa State University. And Karen, just before the break, we were talking about what it would take to codify Roe on the national level so that this would be the law of the nation again. And um, you were talking about uh, both congressional approval but also a constitutional amendment. And let's talk with uh, talk about congressional approval of that right now because, uh, of course, that is something that a lot of people who are going to the polls right now and and through Election Day are thinking about how their vote may impact abortion rights in this country. So what would have to happen in the midterm election to make it possible to get that through Congress?
1: Yeah. So the first thing that would have to happen is that Democrats would need to maintain control of both the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. Um, It's pretty clear. And uh, uh, the Republican leader in the House, Kevin McCarthy, has already been laying out sort of what their legislative strategy would be if the Republicans were to take control. And um, having a law that would codify Roe is um, not on the list, shall we say. Um, And, you know, it's very difficult for the incumbent president's party to gain seats in a midterm election. History is really against um, the Democrats in this regard. And moreover, what we know is that the best predictors of how the president's party is going to do in a midterm election are two things. One is the president's approval rating and the other one is the state of the economy. And both of those are really um, um, big check marks um, against the Democrats. Uh, so what they have to hang their hats on really is the abortion issue, and they are trying their best to use that as a mobilizing factor for people who support abortion rights, especially young voters who are more likely to sit out midterm elections. They have much lower voter turnout rates than older uh, voters and also um, women um, and, you know, women, including women of color, but also white women. So we see, you know, that's really how how abortion has become a key issue in um, Senate races. Now, I think the president said in one of his abortion rallies, and he was calling on people to remember how they felt in June, and just said, "We're a few votes, you know, just a handful of votes short in the Senate." Um, and I don't know how many fingers he has on his. Hand hands. <laughs> but when I'm counting the votes in the Senate, the the Democrats are 10 votes short of a, of a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. And I think it's, you know, there, there are no predictions that the Democrats are going to pick up that many seats. I think the Democrats will be lucky to maintain their 50 vote, um, you know, the evenly split Senate with then um, Kamala Harris being the one who is the tiebreaker vote.
0: And even though uh, we talked about the Iowa poll earlier that show that uh, 61% of Iowans say abortion should be legal in most or all cases, we Mm -hmm. still do not know if, that belief is going to translate to how people actually vote this November.
1: Yes, exactly. And and um if this is in the Des Moines Register poll, we haven't seen it yet, but nationally what we have found is that abortion is moving down the list of key issues on people's um you know, on people's radar as they go to to cast their votes, which of course some of us have already done. And um and that as per usual, right, we are seeing economic issues, inflation um, and interest rates and things like that being um, much more um, important as in people's vote calculus than abortion is.
0: Karen, before I let you go, I mean, we focused on this election and the political climate right now. We're also in a really uh, interesting historical moment where you, of course, have studied women's rights over time. You and I have talked about women's suffrage, for example. And we're in this moment where the rights of a woman in the United States vary depending on where she lives. Give me your thoughts about that.
1: Yeah, and... um I personally think that turning something like abortion over to the states um, was sort of the worst possible outcome, um, irrespective of what your opinion is on abortion. So if you support abortion rights, it means that women have rights in one state that they don't have in another. If you oppose abortion rights, then it means that murder is legal in one state and not legal in another state. Um, And in either case, it means that some entity has uneven rights, whether you you think that that should be the unborn fetus or it's the woman. Uh, We have not seen a patchwork like this since probably before um, women's suffrage. Where women had the right to vote in some states, but not in all states, and in states like Iowa, they could vote in some elections, but not in every election. So that was a huge patchwork quilt. Um, when we think about African American voting rights prior to the um, to the Voting Rights Act in 1965, it was less of a patchwork than it was simply split down. <laughs> you know, either um, it was easy, um, and and African Americans had had easy access to the polls, or they had a series of barriers that essentially disenfranchised them.
0: We have often, or we've also in the wake of the Dobbs decision, we have seen states, again, most state legislatures have not been in session, um, but we have seen some state politicians talking about creating proposals or or creating uh, rules that would restrict the movement of a woman who is pregnant, a person who is pregnant, from traveling across state lines to get an abortion. We haven't actually seen that happen, but that conversation has been had in many places. So, I mean, that that feels like it goes a step farther.
1: Right, and then we also see that in a couple of cases that there has even been threats to uh, punish uh, people who talk about abortion, right? So caregivers or um, folks that are social workers or, or something like that. So now we're talking about other civil liberties, right? Um, you know, the freedom of movement, the freedom of speech, interstate commerce, and uh, there's a whole lot of thorny uh, constitutional issues, and it just means that if, if state legislation are successful in implementing these kinds of bans, that that abortion in one guise or another is going to end up occupying the federal courts. Uh, But yeah, there there are potentially many constitutional rights that are um, under threat if this is carried to its logical extremes.
0: Karen Kudrowski, thank you so much for talking with me.
1: Always a pleasure.
0: Karen Kudrowski is professor and director of the Carrie Chapman Katz Center for Women in Politics at Iowa State University. So we've been taking the, the political view of the abortion issue right now in the lead up to the midterm elections. But the way we view abortion and abortion rights in Iowa today is different from the way this issue has been seen through history. Lena Mario is Assistant Professor in Gender, Women's and Sexuality Studies, History and Latinx Studies at the University of Iowa, and she is on the line with me now. Hello, Lena. Lena, can you hear me? All right. We seem to have lost our connection with Lena Maria. We will um, work on re-establishing that collection or that connection here in a moment. Again, this hour we are talking about how abortion and abortion rights in Iowa has changed over time, and how abortion rights in Iowa has been shaped by different movements throughout history. We will dig into that in just a moment. And while we wait to make that connection, I'll also mention last week was Iowa Week here on Talk of Iowa. And all week long, we explored K-12 public education in the state of Iowa. We looked at the history of K-12 public education and how our schools have evolved over time through policies and through funding changes. We also talked about some of the major challenges facing K-12. Through twelve public education, right now we talked about the move uh, on the behalf of some Republicans in the state of Iowa, the movement toward privatization or the movement toward school choice. We talked about that. We also talked about staff and teacher shortages in the state, and we wrapped up the week with conversations with public school students all over the Iowa, all over the state of Iowa, who are making their teachers proud. You can find out uh, all about that series. If you happen to miss it or miss any of those shows, you can go to iowapublicradio.org, look for series and click on Iowa Week 2022. You can see all of the information and listen to all the programs. You can also subscribe to the Talk of Iowa podcast. And now we do have a connection with Lena Murillo. And uh, I'll mention again that the way we view abortion and abortion rights in Iowa today is different from the way this issue has been seen through history. Lena Maria Mario is assistant professor in gender, women's and sexuality studies, history and latinx studies at the University of Iowa. Lena, welcome. Hi Charity, good morning. Thank you so much for being here. And sorry about our, our little technical uh, foible there. But I I do want you to take us back in time, because right now at this moment in time, of course, abortion rights uh, that is looming large in Iowa and all around the country. And the debate today, I think we're all pretty familiar with it. It is um, largely a, a debate over religion in many ways and religious beliefs. People who are pro-life are anti-abortion rights. And then there are those who are um, in favor of abortion rights. And it has become a, a debate that is really locked into this, this argument. But that's not the way that it always was. So take us back in time and, and help us understand the evolution of this issue absolutely um yeah and i think it's really important for
2: um people to understand that um that abortion has really been um on and off in the united states a hot button issue um and and especially in in this last 30 years um has been politicized to an extreme but, if we go back to the nineteenth century, um, in the mid mid nineteenth century, um most states um, did not have um any any policies or laws um, banning um, termination of pregnancy. And this was seen as something that normal that people might choose to do. Um, they would often advertise it. Um, uh, for different types of uh, abortifacients, so herbs and other things that would, you know, this is their terminology of that period, but return the menses, right? So return your menstrual cycle. And so we have to think about what the 1850s in the U.S. might look like. Um, The medical profession had not yet fully established itself People would often go to apothecaries or midwives or they themselves would use um, different things to to cure themselves of all sorts of ailments. And oftentimes, one of the things that people believed was that um, you were not um, causing any real harm if you were to bring back a return of the menses before quickening. And what quickening was, was fetal movement. So this is probably about the second trimester, right? So what we would today call um, fetal viability.
0: And of course, you know, we think about those times as well, access to uh, doctors, access to knowledgeable medical professionals, understanding of what was actually going on in the human body. uh, There were probably a lot of disconnects and probably a lot of dangerous things happening as well.
2: Absolutely. And so what you begin to see is that as as states become states, right, so one of those states is Iowa, Um, they do pass certain kinds of legislation that are really meant to protect people from being poisoned from some of these abortifacients, right, that might cause people to die if they took them. Um, But for the most part, right, and historians have written about this extensively, for the most part, people respected the ability for the person who's pregnant, for women who were pregnant at the time, um, to make decisions about whether or not they wanted to have a return of the menses, right, if they wanted to go through that process. Now, it's in that late uh, 1850s period that we begin to see, actually, uh, the medical profession um, really think about itself uh, and want to professionalize itself and so you have a doctor by the name of Horatio Storer, and he's in New York, and he really says, you know what? One of the things that we really need to kind of take control over is is maternal health and, and women's health. That's a place that we really can sort of dig into and make that. Um, and he was an uh, obstetrician, uh, a gynecologist, and so he decides that abortion is the issue that he is going to sort of um, put forward. And he begins to write letters. I mean, this is right, like you know old old school begins to write letters to doctors in state after state after state, and really begins to push this idea that abortion should be done under the supervision exclusively of the medical profession. Uh, midwives and and others should not be allowed to engage. Um, in in offering access to to uh, abortifacients or or any other kinds of um, what today we might call surgical abortions, and so um, this really does kind of take off. And this is also at the same time um, that there are sort of national scares about um, increased immigration from Eastern Europe from China. From Mexico so now I'm talking about the end of the 19th century this is also um, uh, in the sort of wake of the end of the Civil War uh, and Reconstruction so the country is shifting and changing and one of the things that a lot of people uh, were afraid of were the changing demographics right so in some ways this does parallel what we're seeing today Right. So at the time, the people that were leading the anti-abortion movement were physicians. But in some ways, they were responding to demographic change, which is essentially what we're seeing today in 2022. Um, This fear that um, white women were not having enough children. Uh, that there was a precipitous decline in the birth weight uh, birth rate, excuse me among white women, so some historians have shown that at the beginning of the eighteenth century, white women were having something like seven point two children um, per per married couple, and by the end of the nineteenth century it 's down to three children and so this really creates fear. And people like Horatio Soros or stoked those fears of demographic decline. And they say things like, you know, as as the U.S. is spreading west, right, this is, uh, um, you know, including states like California and New Mexico, um, states that had been originally and Mexican states.
0: right? We'll like, have to, we'll have to pick is- up the, the narrative there in just a moment. We are talking about abortion rights through history right now. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're talking about abortion rights in Iowa. Of course, abortion rights have become a major issue in the upcoming midterm elections in Iowa. We started off with that political view. Right now, though, we are looking into the past to better understand our relationship with abortion rights and abortion throughout time in Iowa, because the way we view abortion and abortion rights in Iowa today is very different from how the issue has been seen through history. Lena Murillo is assistant professor in gender, women's and sexuality studies, history and Latinx studies at the University of Iowa. And Lena, just before the break, you were talking about this moment um, near the turn of the 19th or the near the turn of the 20th century. So toward the end of the 19th century, where there was a, a push. Now, it was a push to make sure that abortion was medicalized. But this was also a moment in time where there was a push to medicalize Pregnancy in the United States as well, a, a movement that, that took on a great deal of power over time as we saw fewer and fewer women giving birth with midwives and um, more often with doctors and later, of course, in hospitals as well. So that that's one part of the movement. But you were talking about... Um, A nationalism that was also driving this movement, because, of course, uh, many of the the concerns that we hear from people talking about immigration in the United States, there are... Echoes of this through time. So, around the the turn of the twentieth century, there were people who were concerned that there were too many immigrants coming into this country and not enough births uh, happening among the people who were already in this country. So, tell me a, a little bit more about that movement and its relationship to abortion. Absolutely,
2: and and thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to get very deep into the weeds here with the history, um, but. It's important, I think, because the echoes of, of the, the history of demographic decline and the sort of political um, fear mongering that occurred um, during that, that period coincides with a lot of, as you're saying, a lot of sort of important uh, movements and moments um, in the early 20th century. And so yes, by the end of the 19th century, we begin to see uh, declines in the white birth rate And there were all kinds of of pseudoscientific movements, one of which is the eugenics movement um, that comes forward to say that um, that the reason why uh, native born, quote unquote, native born white women, that's the term that that they would have used at the time, um, were having less children was because they were becoming too educated. Um, uh, uh, Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt comes out and calls it um, that this was race suicide and blames women um, for not doing their, um, their duty, right, to, to have more children. Um, and so these kinds of ideas um, really sort of permeate the first decades of the 20th century and and become part of, unfortunately, um, the the birth control movement, Um, they become part of women's suffrage movements, right? These kinds of racialist ideas um, flow through, unfortunately, Um, some of these movements that were meant to um, actually uh, be progressive and offer um, access to things like birth control and other kinds of of reproductive healthcare. So, um, oftentimes Margaret Sanger um, is is brought up in these conversations and her connection to eugenesis. Um, certainly, um, that was a it's a troubling, troubling and problematic uh, history um, that undergirds uh, the move the, the movement really for um, for reproductive control rather than reproductive freedom.
0: Right. And there's a push-pull um, there, of course, because they, the movement to restrict the ability of these so-called native-born white women to ha- have abortion access is on one side of that. And then as the birth control uh, possibilities increased, then also to use birth control to control the birth rate of these populations that were considered to be less desirable. Absolutely,
2: absolutely, and that's the that's the the work that I'm trying to do is sort of disentangling um, these complicated histories um, to show, in some ways, the way that they kind they continue to crop up in in our in our current political milieu, right, to sort of figure out where the strains of this conversation come from. And so what ends up happening in, you know, and all this time in the early 20th century, um, people still have access to abortion, even though it's illegal. Um, There are underground abortion providers. They existed everywhere in Iowa, um, and many of them were physicians. Some were not. Some were not reputable people at all, but certainly some of them were physicians. Um, You know, historians have said that, you know, there's ebbs and flows and sort of concern for um, illegal abortion. Uh, Some some have have, uh, some historians have called it um, benign neglect towards the practice. Right. People understood to a certain degree that access to abortion was just a natural part of of women's reproductive lives. Um, and so they kind of let uh, abortion providers be, uh, for the most part, until after World War II. Uh, there is a sort of moral panic that arises as GIs are coming home from war, um, their wives, girlfriends, um, sisters, and so forth have, have gone into the workforce to support the war effort, um, and they actually enjoy uh, the ability to go to work, they enjoy the um, ability of having sort of financial control and some financial stability, and they refuse um, to go back into the home. Um, and so some politicians and moralists begin to blame um, easy access to abortion for, uh, their, for women's decisions to, um, to, not, uh, to not leave the workforce. And so this is when you see kind of a ratcheting up in the 1950s um, and and early 1960s of raids on abortion providers within the United States. And again, I'm talking about uh, underground abortion providers. And it's in that moment, right? This is, again, you know, when we see the civil rights movement, when we see the women's rights movement kind of taking hold. And so at that point, in many ways, the cat's out of the bag, right? People understand that, um, that, that if they have no control over their bodies, um, then they don't have, you know, access to education, their, the way that they can get education is curtailed, they don't have access to jobs. Remember, there are, this is a time in the United States when if you became pregnant, you could lose your job. Right. There are countless stories of women who would hide their pregnancies just so that they could keep working um, as teachers, right, as secretaries. Um, And so people wanted to be able to work. Right. Women wanted to be able to work and be part of the workforce um, and be part of, of their democracy. Uh, And so they start going to places like the U.S.-Mexico border. They start going to Mexican abortion providers, and that's some of the research that I've done. Um, And you see women going um, to northern Mexico starting in the late 1940s all the way up until um, the late 1960s. And some of these were very good vetted providers that had been vetted by feminist organizations in the U.S., and uh, And so hundreds, if not thousands of people sought access, not only in places like Mexico, but people traveled to Europe. People traveled to Japan, um, Puerto Rico, um, other areas where they might have access to, and, abortion and of course care,
0: people who couldn't travel, Often sought abortions at home, and we can read many horror stories about women who who went to unvetted providers here in the state of Iowa. There's a story Absolutely. about a, a chiropractor in Cedar Rapids, and many women died because of his services. There was a bowling alley operator in Des Moines who also provided abortions. So we this is where we see the the really dangerous abortions or attempted abortions taking place that, that are costing women their lives and their fertility.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, I think for me, those stories um, are echoed in the research that I do. Uh, people who um, suffered awful uh, traumas of sexual assault and sexual violence um, a lot of the letters that I've read through—I mean, these are countless letters that were written to a lot of the organizations I, I look at—from um, parents of young of young girls who had been sexually assaulted, and they're begging for access to an abortion provider for their children. Um, I don't think that people quite understand. Uh, for some reason, we've lost sort of touch of um, of that history. And, um, you know, people traveled from Alaska. I have letters from women traveling all the way from Alaska down to, to uh, northern Mexico. Um, people traveling from the Dakotas uh, to to northern Mexico to get access to abortion. Um, wow. And being absolutely, you know, there's a letter of a father who I, I can barely think of it without getting choked up. But he's begging Patricia McGinnis, who's the, the one of the main activists, um, who ran the, the sort of underground abortion network out of San Francisco? And he says, "I don't, you know, I'm I'm so scared for my daughter. She's 13 years old, um, and I don't know what to do, and I don't know how to help her. And you're you're my last hope. Um, and you know, again, the, in some ways, the, those those stories do mirror what we're seeing now, right? Mm-hmm. Cases of very young children um, who are who are being forced to leave." states where they are in because they don't have access to, um, to this health care
0: um, because Lino, of the draconian law. Right. I don't want to run out of time, but one of the things that I hear you telling me, and, and this is fascinating, is that there really was a relatively brief period in history where abortion rights and, and the, the rights of pregnant women um, were considered to be a part of the women's movement. I mean, we're talking about up through the 1950s that this was never about women having rights. It was about population control. It was about control of women's bodies. And then there was this movement in the 1970s where uh, the women's rights movement really took ownership of this issue
2: absolutely absolutely and people saw it as part fundamental to um to having access to democracy uh if they didn't have access over their own bodies right and so you see a lot of people involved in this movement um, not, you know, certainly women's, women's rights movement, but also the LGBTQ movement, um, gay liberation, a lot of these folks, you know, the civil rights movement, Chicanos, Chicanas, um, Black Power movement, a lot of these groups um, saw the issue of health care. Right. And this is something that we don't often talk about when we talk about these um, revolutionary movements of the 19, late 1960s and 1970s, that many of them saw access to health care as fundamental, right, to liberation. And part of that conversation was access to reproductive care. And within that larger milieu of reproductive care was access to um, health care for their children, access to abortion, access to birth control. Right. Those things were critical. that particular period. Now, what ends up happening is that you have the counter movement, right? The anti-abortion movement that springs up after Roe v. Wade. And it's all very political. Um, You have people like Phyllis Schlafly and and Jerry Falwell, who kind of joined forces. Phyllis Schlafly is from Illinois. She's a Catholic, ardent anti-feminist. And Jerry Falwell, who's an evangelical Protestant, and they join forces. And they realize. That abortion is actually a really critical issue that they can rally um, their religious base around and get them to vote on that issue alone. And in fact, it's in 1980 that they helped bring Ronald Reagan to power. And Ronald Reagan becomes the first Republican ever um, to, to be anti-abortion despite his support for abortion when he was governor of california he later on says that it was a mistake to liberalize abortion access in california and he becomes the president of the united States. and after that election no other republican um running for national office uh, as as president can be anti-abortion um because that that coalition Built by people like Phyllis Schlafly and Jerry Falwell was so important and um, really revolutionized um, the Republican base and and its roots to to uh, sort of conservative religious
0: ideologies. Um,
1: and and, and so that I, I has that, built. That's new. That's right. new. That's
2: very new. That's like re- very recent history. And,
0: and that is fascinating. We only have a, about two minutes left, but something else that is fascinating about your work, you mentioned earlier that we do hear these uh, nationalistic voices that you were talking about at the turn of the 20th century echoed in today's movement to take away abortion rights. And and that is fascinating because it has been um, framed as this moral issue now for over 30 years. But we are still hearing voices of people talking about the wrong people having children, right? Absolutely. This is, you know, a, awful terms that that are
2: thrown out. Um, such as anchor baby. This is very typical terms used uh, to talk about um, Latinas and, and Mexican-origin women along the border, um, denying them access to health care um, when they cross over because, uh, you know, Congress people don't want them to have, um, you know, access to, to health care and other things or, and, and certainly not access to citizenship. Um, and the m- mythology that immigrant people um, naturally um, have more uh, children um, than other groups. All of these are these sort of racial, um, racist, I should say, um, myths um, that help kind of weaponize the conversation against um immigrants and especially against communities of color um, in the United States. And this is all because of what we act, what we can actually see right is that demographic changes are happening. So in a state like Iowa that has been overwhelmingly white um, uh, for most of its history, right this is becoming a critical turning point because the population, Um, Because the demographics in Iowa are changing, right? And especially among young people. um, As we look into the future, what we're seeing is that the demographics are going to be changing in Iowa, especially among the Latina, Latino and Latinx
0: communities. Right. Mm -hmm. Lena, I I think we could talk a great deal more, but thank you for helping us see what is below the surface of this debate that has been so polarizing here in Iowa and around the country. Lena Maria. Morillo is an assistant professor in gender, women's and sexuality studies, history and Latinx studies at the University of Iowa. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.